Hi, my name is Kendriana, and this is part three of the American Cast Conversations interview series. I started this project nine months ago with a written piece on my Tumblr, Kendriana Speaks, and since then I've interviewed seven people from all over the country of different presentations, gender identities, socioeconomic conditions, ethnic or racial backgrounds, and migrant statuses about their experiences with capitalism in the U.S. In the first episode, we talked about capitalism's impact on our daily livelihoods. In the second, we talked about the social effect of capitalism. And for the final installment, I spoke with three people uh, with immigrant backgrounds about capitalism and the American dream. Katie Mendez is a Puerto Rican student studying immigration law in DC. Katie Coleman is of the third generation of her European family in South Carolina, where she stands to inherit a family farm. And Mia Little is a Filipinx sex worker, consultant, queer sex workers advocate, and pornographer in California. What started out as a small storytelling project uh, recorded in my bedroom has grown into a media piece still recorded in my bedroom, but has been a source of learning, resistance, and connection for people all over the world. If you'd like to support this project and learn more about my work as an artist, writer, and speaker, you can find more information at kendriana.com and patreon.com slash kendriana. Okay, let's get started. This is Capitalism and Ubiquity. Um, tell me a, a little bit about yourself. Um, what's your background? What do you do for a living? Okay, so uh, I was born in Puerto Rico. I lived there until I was 12. And I moved literally one week before seventh grade started to the United States. So we had like that just one week to get all of the school supplies and like classes registered and they threw me into pre-AP classes in Texas, which I had no idea what that was. Um, and I somehow survived the tax exam, which was new to me. And now I'm in law school full-time. So not working right now because I seriously do not have the time. Okay, what kind of law are you studying? Um, international human rights. So okay. I want to focus on the intersection between uh, gender violence, human trafficking, and then how that affects refugees and immigration. So a whole lot of depressing stuff. Hmm. Okay. So um, that's funny. I didn't know that you, um, when you came from home, you actually were in Texas because I'm from Texas. So I know like, okay. <laughs> I know the tax test and all of that stuff. So um yeah. Um, so, basically, you'll be studying international and immigration law? Yes. So, it's interesting that you bring that up because I um, would love to know, and you said that you moved here a week before school start started. I would love to know about the process itself, um, what it was like, any challenges that you faced? So, because we're a territory, we have citizenship when we're born. Um, and the only reason they gave us citizenship was so we could fight in the First World War. So they gave us citizenship in 1917, and then like a month after, we're sending us off with African Americans to be like science experiments for the First World War. Um, so we didn't have any of like the traditional immigration process, but we did have difficulties with like proving 
to people who don't know that Puerto Ricans are citizens, that Puerto Ricans are mm-hmm. citizens. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I went to get my license, they thought my birth certificate was a fake and that I was just trying to pretend that I was a citizen. Um, mm-hmm. So we had to go back a different day to go get my permit. Um, I had my teachers ask me all of the time if I was an illegal immigrant or, like, how citizenship worked in Puerto Rico. All of the kids told me I was an illegal immigrant. So it was more on the social side than the um, Mm -hmm. governmental side, I guess, that we experience issues. So would you say you feel that even despite being a citizen that you have, you have um, an immigrant identity, not only because of those challenges that you face, but because of the way the U.S., the United States is a, like you said, they, when you, when you say they, you're talking about the United States. So um, the way the United States as a country has treated you and, and, um, and Puerto Rico. Yes, definitely. Um, how do I explain this? Um, we're too American to be Hispanic, but we're too Hispanic to be American. So it was this weird, like, I didn't fit in with the, you know, Hispanic cliques in school, and I didn't fit in with, like, anybody else that was American in middle school. So it was this kind of isolating experience because I was the only Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And so um, my mom always had this theory that there was, like, even resentment from the other Latin American communities because we got citizenship so quickly whereas they have to mm-hmm. struggle so much more. And so there's this alienating mm-hmm. thing where it's like you're not really wanted either way, but you're treated like an immigrant. And even when um, Sonia Sotomayor was being nominated for the Supreme Court, they referred to her as an immigrant in every single article. So everyone thinks of us as immigrants, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um I have a couple of other follow-up questions because you just said a lot. Like, so you also told me about um, your indigenous identity as well. Yeah, we are not federally recognized at all. Like, even in the island, people think that um, that you know people don't exist. So there's this whole new. I guess it's relatively new, and I only found out about this myself when I was doing research for my thesis that there are actual tribes in Puerto Rico that are trying to revive the Taino language and are trying to uh, get more recognition federally and in the island because there's constantly sacred sites just being demolished by the United States or by Puerto Rican government. Uh, There's very few sites where they actually have um, the art and the religious symbols and all of that. So it's wild because I was always taught that the, the genocide was so big that there were no Taino people left. But what happened was that the mm. systems and the culture, I guess, kind of died out or assimilated so much that it wasn't recognized as its own thing. But the blood and, like, the DNA and the people and everybody are still there. So they've done weird DNA uh, tests, which I guess have, like, their pros and their cons, but they've been able to prove that, like, there's still banging of blood and it didn't just disappear into thin air, like people said, and I ended up being tested, too, and found out that I was in one of the higher, like, blood quantums for the Taino people, which was surprising to my family because they also grew up with that mindset of, like, there are no Taino people left. So I know people, everyone has, you know, their own opinion and, and their rightful opinion, concerning blood quantum what are your thoughts um 
I've actually been, there's a group on Facebook that I found that was a nice little community to talk about uh, this with, but they, we've kind of gone away from using the blood quantum to like identify yourself because they used that for so long as a tool to be, to show that like, oh, we don't exist. And mm -hmm. there was, there were huge movements in Puerto Rico where people tried to prove that they were only Spanish and Spanish only because Spanish people were white. And if you were white, then maybe you would get some better treatment from the United States. So at least the tribal leaders have tried to like not let that identify how much you actually are indigenous in the island just because they've used that as a tool to show like, oh, we don't exist at all. Um, it's been nice to prove that, yes, we still are here, but it's also, it's not such a double-edged sword that I'm really not sure if there's like a, a more good than that, but I don't know. Why do you think it's a double-edged sword? Um, because it's one of those things that they've used, I guess, to separate people into um, segregated areas. So they've used it to separate Taino people. Like they, instead of being like, "Oh, you still are here. This is great. Let's integrate all of our cultures." They used it to be like, "Oh, you're Taino. Okay, great. You belong over there." So mm -hmm. it's a weird <laughs> kind of like. Um, in the Holocaust, if you had like a certain percentage, like, oh, now you're tainted kind mm -hmm. of thing. But it's also been a good way to prove, like, that, you know, people didn't just suddenly evaporate from the earth. Mm -hmm. And it all comes from Euro Eurocentric colonization. Not only yeah. the United States, but also Spain. Yeah. Um, so just a combination of the two. Um, this idea that the people that have been there the entire time, somehow, all of a sudden, they just don't exist anymore. Yeah, and so you'll hear a lot from Puerto Rican people about how proud we are of, like, all of our three ethnicities, and they'll always mention Spanish first, as if the Spanish people were there first, when it actually, if you're going to go by order, it should be the Taino people first, and then the Spanish people came, and then they brought African slaves with them, but mm -hmm. it just gets deleted. Like, Taino people are kind of just, like, a small percentage that's recognized in Puerto Rican history. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we say enslaved Africans because they were enslaved by people, but slave, slave was not their identity. Right. <laughs> that's interesting. So I just asked you a bunch of things that we didn't even, <laughs> you just yeah. really got straight into it. And I was like, I've got to learn more. So getting back to the capitalism aspect of it, um, especially as someone who Ha identifies or has an immigrant identity, what, um, although you are an American citizen, right. what, um, what are your thoughts on the American dream? Um, not only as an ideology, but also as a socioeconomic concept. Is it real? Is it fake? Have you benefited from it? You know, has it been a detriment to you and your people? I think it's been more detrimental than anything, honestly. Um, I feel like people in Puerto Rico work just so that they can live, but I feel like people in the United States live to work. So that mindset changed our household really quickly. So now I feel like even my dad has always been a workaholic, but he was a workaholic because he started his pharmaceutical business right around the time that Clinton removed the Section 936 tax code. 
So we ended up going from having over 150, uh, 150 pharmaceutical companies to like 15 in 10 years. So he had to be a workaholic just to survive. Mm -hmm. But then we moved here, and he was a workaholic because American identity prides itself on how hard you bust your ass. And, you know, it kind of fed off into how we all perceive ourselves. So now if I'm not working, I feel like, oh, my God, there's something that I need to be doing. Mm -hmm. When Puerto Rico, it wasn't like that. I went home. I did the homework. Homework was done. I got to go play. So it's been – I feel like it's real in the sense that it shapes so much of – the society and the culture in the United States, but I don't think it's real in the sense that it's effective or that it's as good as people make it sound. Okay. I think I understand what you're saying. I'm glad that you brought up the, especially as people of color, we really, when you talk about working hard for this American dream or constantly working for this America, this America, this idea of, of, of this pursuit of wealth, it, it really is, it's something that is generally projected onto people of color that we need to be constantly working. Because the truth is, is although there are a lot of hardworking white folks, um, you know, we're, we're working two and three and four times as hard. And we're not just doing it for money. Um, it's also a part of our validation as in terms of our rights, in terms of our humanity, that you need to work work incredibly hard and work all of these hours to be seen as a human or to have rights um, as someone who lives in this country. So I'm really I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, how has um, ca- American capitalism in particular impacted your life? I know we've gotten a little bit into that, um, but how has it impacted your life, your country, your heritage, and your immigrant identity? Um, it's really the reason that the United States invaded us in the first place. Um, there was absolutely no other logical reason for the United States to keep Puerto Rico other than money. They use us as a tax haven. Like that's what it's always been. Um, it's the biggest tax haven that the United States has for big corporations. It's the reason we have a recession. Um, so they have benefited off of our resources and left us with nothing. So they took, you know, sugar domains and like they made this huge sugar kingdom close down schools so that they could have more sugar uh, plantations and the coffee. Um, they they put different laws for industry to help, try to help our economy after the depression and different issues that we had because we had uh, a similar situation to Hurricane Maria in the early 1900s, and so they started putting in policies to try to help us recover, except it was just as shitty as the ones that we have now. They were not effective for us. They were really just for the benefit of Americans. And so if they hadn't invaded and if they hadn't passed the 936 tax code and then taken it away when it was no longer benefiting them, then we wouldn't like me and my family wouldn't have moved out of Puerto Rico. Like that is directly the reason we moved out of Puerto Rico was that they put in a tax code so that they would, uh, corporations wouldn't be going to foreign countries. But then when they realized that they were losing federal tax money, they took away that tax code and then we were left with nothing. So they milked us until they got whatever they wanted. And then when they realized it wasn't that beneficial for them, they took it away. And 
we tried to survive for years in Puerto Rico, but it didn't work. So we moved two years after the recession in Puerto Rico started. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it's just this compounded oppression where it, like you mentioned about um, Puerto Rico being used as this tax haven for millionaires and billionaires and corporations, and they refuse to make, they're using Puerto Rico like a state, but it yes. remains as a territory. And then they withhold resources. I mean, like, for example, the response in terms of the hurricane, it was, it was, I consider it to be genocide. It was absolutely devastating. Yeah. And I was reading that there are parts of Puerto Rico that will never be the same ever again. They'll never um, have um, electricity again, access to the same type of water, electricity, just basic needs, basic needs that you that you have, that you, the basic things that you need to have a decent quality of life. Um, what, what are your thoughts about the response after the hurricane, how the administration, um, how, how it was portrayed in the media, uh, what the administration chose to do? Um, I really don't want to say names, but you know who I'm talking about. Okay. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not at all surprised. This is 100% the kind of thing that I expected um, when he was voted into office. And it was why this was a particularly hard election for Puerto Rican people because we had him and then we had Clinton. And people just were terrified of Clinton after what happened with the Section 936 tax vote. Um, And it's not like we can vote. So people in Puerto Rico can't vote. Um, But we do fight wars for America. So... um, I'm not at all surprised because they there have been massacres. There they bombed the island, and when I was four years old, they bombed the island and killed a security guard. So I went to the beach when I was ten years old, and there were military tanks just left off on the coast and oh. areas of, that were blocked off because there were still radioactive bombs left over that no one ever bothered to clean up. And so one of the islands that will never be the same is uh, Vieques because it was bombed. It hasn't been cleaned up. It has the higher cancer rates of, like, any other place in the United States. Um, And because it's an island off the coast of Puerto Rico, it also doesn't get any relief after the hurricane. So it's got years of bombing to deal with um, and the hurricane to deal with. And so nothing's being done about that. No one remembers those little islands. They always think of the main island. So the people that are in those smaller islands have to literally go through boats to get medical care. And when the docks are ruined because of the hurricane, that's impossible. So they're just stranded in those islands left to die. So it, it's, mm. it's literally a genocide. So we're talking about political warfare, psychological warfare, biological warfare, mental, emotional warfare, economic warfare, and on top of that, Americans are going to your island for vacation. Yeah, there are little <laughs> pockets of the island that are so full of millionaires from America that they're literally called Gringolandia um, because it's just a bunch of American people who bought up like entire chunks of the island and took over it. And so now they have these huge vacation spots. And I think... Um, he who shall not be named even had a golf resort, uh, resort in the island at one point. 
but then you go outside of those little bubbles and there's so much poverty and the universities don't have enough funding. They're not being remodeled. The houses are falling apart. Um, and one of the issues that we've had after the hurricane is that the way that land gets passed down is so traditional of from family to family to family mm -hmm. that there were no official land titles to prove we own this. Yes. Place, and so the federal uh, government I'm glad you it. brought that up. Yes. I'm so, I am so glad you brought that up. I am. I'm glad you brought that up because it's these, it's these Eurocentric ways of doing business and politics and everything. And people say, well, it's the right way just because it's white, you know, right. but they are making these laws that benefit them. It's the same way when we think about, it's the same it's the same way. It's the same way in the United States, you know. Not, and I know it's a totally, um, and I say continental United States, but I know it's a it's a different experience um, in many ways between black and brown people. But there are black people where it's it's the same situation where you have agreements where you shook on it, or um, yeah. your great your eldest great grandmother does not have a birth certificate. Um, because they just, it either got lost or hello, they just didn't have the rights to get them before, okay. you know, 1960, 1950, 1940, what, what have you. They just never, they didn't have the rights to get one or, or they couldn't go outside of their neighborhood to get those types of things because of, of racism, you know, and, and it's just, it's just interesting that people, and that's just the way how Eurocentricism works, you know, the, this idea that the way that colonizers do things is the right way and the way that everyone else does it is the wrong way because it's by word of bond when really perhaps in our cultures word is bond perhaps we have that um, high standard of ethics where you can pass land down to each family member without having to sign a contract whereas historically perhaps white people just don't have that type of morality I, I'm just saying yeah. I'm just yeah. saying. <laughs> it happens a lot, and I think that's how we were able to take so much land in the first place was that, you know, the people that were, they were still in Puerto Rico when the United States arrived just didn't have papers. So the United States could say, oh, let me create these papers. Now it's mine because I have the papers and you don't. Even though for centuries it was passed down from family to family to family. So, like, I don't know anything about my family past my grandma. My, or my grandma's generation, because from then on, it was a lot of Taino and um, African enslaved people whose documents we just don't have. And it all it got intermixed ethnically, racially, and things got lost. And so like, we um, started trying to find some stuff online and were able to find like one document of a former family member, like a great grandma who was actually enslaved at one point in Puerto Rico, and that's about as much information from, I guess, pre-United States times in Puerto Rico that I could find. And this is happening now. This yeah. is happening now. Not 100 years ago, it's happening now. Um, yeah. So you're currently studying law. Um, how would you, and you talked a little bit about when you first moved here, just adjusting to standardized tests, standardized testing, which is just, especially in Texas, it's just a money. It's just all about money. That's, that's what it's, it's not about learning anything. Um, but what has your experience been in academia and, um, 
what are some of the ways that you think well let's start with that let's start with what has your experience been in academia here um, starting from you know when you were a preteen and a teen until now where you're studying law um weirdly enough i think it's better now that i'm in law school like i could treat it better in law school than i did when i first moved here and i i wasn't necessarily expecting that because they make law school seem like such a you know competitive place and you're constantly competing with other people but when i first moved here i got called illegal immigrant all the time i didn't want to be called on in class because people would always make a comment about a word that i didn't know or the way i pronounced something and so i was super shy about saying anything in english because people would always make a comment about my accent or whatever um, i had to go to tutoring at 7 a.m and at 3 p.m every day because i was a few years behind in math and I, would, I came here in seventh grade, so I had to take the math tax. And if I didn't pass it, I would get left behind. Mm -hmm. So I was terrified of that because I was always a super smart kid in Puerto Rico, and I didn't want to be labeled stupid or have or give more people uh, more power to say, like, right. oh, it's because she's Hispanic and she doesn't speak English. She can't do this. Um, so I went to tutoring from 7 a.m. every single day the entire year that I was here, and then 3 p.m. after school was over, and then on Saturday, so that I could pass the tax exam. Um, I had even teachers who would ask me little things like, oh, you kind of look ethnically ambiguous. Like, where are you from? Or like, where, where's your accent oh, from? that's okay. gross. Yeah. Um, How old were you when that was happening? I was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got here, a lot of people would ask me, you know, like, what's the political relationship between Puerto Rico and United States? Like, are you illegal? Are you a citizen? What does that work? Like, how does that work? And I didn't know any about, of this. Like, I had to ask my parents, why did they ask me this question? Or, like, what does this even mean? I don't know why they're asking me this. Um, I got sexually harassed a lot because I was... I very much stood out as a new kid, and everyone thought that because I was Puerto Rican, that meant I was freaky in bed and that I would like it. Mm. So I had a lot of guys who would just, like, sexually harass me or, like, put their hands on me, and then if I complained about it, they'd be like, oh, but you're Puerto Rican. You're supposed to like this. That's what we see in all of They movies. fetishized you as a child. Yes. And this yeah. was happening at school? Yes. Um. Yeah, so I was 12, and I, like, the hallways... Um, I had to report guys multiple times to the SRO for different things. Like one time, two guys hugged me so hard front and back. Like they sandwiched me and then squeezed me so hard that my chest was red for hours. So I, that, that was the one time that I was forced to tell my parents about it because I couldn't hide the fact that I had marks on me from it. Um, so it was little things like that that my parents didn't have to deal with and my little sister didn't have to deal with because she was in elementary school so she was a lot more sheltered and then my mom was a stay-at-home mom so she didn't face this kind of stuff in the workplace my dad is self-employed so he works he pretty much worked hmm. with the same people he did before mm -hmm. and a lot of them were international mm -hmm. so it just it was kind of a weird experience because i couldn't explain to them what was going on and they didn't quite understand how much of it there was do you think a lot of immigrants in your generation specifically um, ha share that type of experience? You know, sort of being the only one in your family moving to 
this totally different place and kind of balancing these identities and being your only one, the only one in your family at that age who's going through this stuff and no one to really talk to about it. Yeah, um, I hear this a lot from my Mexican friends too, especially as they're first generation, because if their parents don't know English, there's kind of a, they're kind of oblivious to it. They, they literally don't understand what's being said to them, whereas the kid does. And so they're having to protect their parents and protect themselves from the racism that they see because their parents don't maybe understand the, the system. They, the kids always have to translate. So like I would have to translate for my parents a lot of the time, especially my dad. And so if you get said, if something racist is being said, you kind of like have to choose whether or not you filter it out of the conversation when you translate it back to your parents. So I think it is super common for first generation people to have those issues that parents are not aware of because a lot of times we choose to protect our parents and not say like, hey, this person actually said something really racist, but I chose not to translate it back to you. It sounds like a huge burden. It, yeah, once the longer we spent here and the more they got acclimated to the area, the less it happened. But it was a lot to take on as a 12 and 13 year old, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, what do you think, you said that you experienced more of it when you were younger and now that you're older, um, it's not as much? And you gave some examples of some of the things you went through when you were younger. Um, just from an honest point of view, what do you think changed? Was it the people? Was it something that changed about you? What, what do you think? Is there something that's making the difference? I think it was a little bit of both. So a lot of the kids that were mean in middle school and in high school, I'm actually really good friends with now and have come to realize like, oh, I was really shitty to you at this point in time. So like they've done their work and have realized like that was super racist and I didn't realize it. Like no one taught me anything about Puerto Rico and so I didn't know any better. Like I had people who asked me if Puerto Rico was an island off of Mexico because they never heard about Puerto Rico. And knowing me they learned more about it because i would tell them no we're not part of mexico like this is what's going on mm -hmm. and so that was part of it was people were willing to listen and change the other part of it was like i stopped taking people's bullshit and separated myself from them if they did any of those things and i think the most important thing was the fact that i moved out of texas so now i'm in dc and i'm in a, a much more liberal university mm -hmm. whereas it, Texas, every school is super conservative, and in the high school, like, we never, there was no history about how we got to be a part of the United States, so they would talk about the Spanish-American War and say, that's how we got Puerto Rico, and that was the end of that. Mm -hmm. And in college, the same thing happened. Um, I was an international studies major. They didn't teach about Puerto Rico in Latin American studies classes because we're part of the United States. But then the American classes, like American history classes, didn't teach about Puerto Rico because we're too Hispanic. So there were literally no classes about Puerto Rico. We mm -hmm. were not included in any Latin American studies classes and Spanish classes. So I wrote a thesis on Puerto Rico specifically for that reason. And basically just like shoved it down people's throats and demanded like, hey, we are, we do exist somewhere. So we have to talk about our history. Mm -hmm. See, it's interesting that you have that experience, you know, and you said part of it is about move, you know, you moved 
from Texas because we, I mean, I, I grew up in Texas, so um, we, you moved from Texas and then you moved to D.C. And this, and this just may be a, a deeper thing of like anti-blackness or colorism, but I have found being on the East Coast and the West Coast that the, the racism isn't necessarily less and in many ways that it's worse. So I think that it's interesting that you have that perspective. Um, I think it's true. I just think in Texas, every single Hispanic person I met was Mexican. So there was a lot of mm-hmm. like, Hispanic racism, whereas in this area of the United States, there are more Puerto Ricans. So even if there is more racism, mm-hmm. I can retreat back to those areas. Whereas in Texas, there were no Puerto Ricans to retreat to. Ah, okay. That, okay. So, yeah, this is more of a safer space in that sense because this is the first time, and I've been here 10 mm-hmm. years, but this is the first time that I have another Puerto Rican classmate mm-hmm. in school, mm-hmm. like, let alone in my class. Mm-hmm. So okay. this is the first time that I, like, I actually have a Puerto Rican mentor here, and I never thought that was going to happen. It would have been impossible in Texas. But mm-hmm. at least I have one mentor that I can go and rant to if I need to, whereas mm-hmm. in Texas I just didn't have that at all. Okay. Okay. I understand what you're saying. Um, being that you studied law, I wanted to just get some of your thoughts on um, certain policies, um, you know, and, you know, you're studying international law, you're studying immigration law. Um, what are some of the ways that you think the United States can begin to repair its exploitation of immigrants? Puerto Rico's uh Puerto Rico as a country, as a territory, and its citizens there especially, um, and also repair some of the biases that exist in immigration policy. A lot of it is going to have to be education because we had someone, like we had a panel for students who may want to work with the State Department, and so we had people who work in the State Department right now come in to talk to us. And we're a really liberal law school. We're focused on human rights and uh, refugees and immigration. And yet we still had people from the State Department who came here who thought it would somehow be okay to say and brag about how they're trying to make the visa process harder. So if we don't educate people and we don't bring them back and touch to their people. I mean, not even bring them back. Just teach them basic humanities that they may have never been taught. We're going to keep having these cycles because we had a State Department person come in and tell people like me who work with refugees and sometimes we work with their cases for the entire duration of law school before they even get an interview. And then they come here and brag about how the interview process is three minutes long and they're trying to make it even harder and shorter for refugees. So it's, I don't even know how you can even begin to dissect that and bring them back and make them realize, like, you, you, to you, this is just an interview. To them, this may be a life or death situation, mm-hmm. and they've already spent five years just getting to the United Nations, and then another three trying to get an interview here in the United States. Like, that's eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had people, like, sometimes our clients they'll have their families die. They may not even get to survive that process, and they're, they're coming to our school to brag about making the visa process harder. And I think that panel happens like two days before it came out on the news that they were making it harder for 
um, diplomats who are in um, same-sex marriages to bring their partners to the United States. Mm -hmm. So it was just mind-boggling that someone could actually think that you're here talking to immigration lawyers and and refugee lawyers and human rights lawyers and say that as if it's a badge of honor. So you think there needs to be a clearing out of the entire system, the people who work within it, um, elements of education? Yeah. I mean, there's no African-American history taught. There's no Latino history taught. Like, um, And I guess with Latino history, it's a little bit harder depending on where you're at because in Texas, it's all about Mexican history. So if you're Puerto Rican and you're in Texas, you make a claim about there's not enough history about, you know, this country, not America, and they're just going to show, oh, but we're teaching about Mexico, so why does it matter? Uh, mm-hmm. Just a lot of complexities, but there seriously needs to be an entire overhaul of how we deal with education and prison, everything. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming to even think about where to begin. And immigration policy. So you're saying education is a good way to start. I mean, it sounds to me, oh, I'm sorry, what were you? Oh, no, you're good. But, yeah, immigration and education is a good way to start because if you don't teach basic humanity to people, then they won't see why they need to let refugees in. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like, um, I don't know, it sounds to me like the United States owes y'all some stuff. It sounds to me like they stole some things and they owe y'all some things. And when I think about people who are indigenous to the islands, people who are indigenous to this island, the United States. Um, And I think about this idea that, you know, the fact that we're calling people immigrants who are indigenous to here, I just, it it doesn't, and, 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 the legacy of just stealing land and resources and and genocide it just i mean what what do you what are your thoughts do you feel i mean when we're talking about kind of you mentioned some programs that existed before that were really just only to help rich white americans um that existed in puerto rico what are some ways that the United States as a country can start to repair some of what it has done historically to Puerto Rico? There's, I actually wrote about this in my thesis because at the time, and this was before the hurricane, so there was an entire different layer of shit to have to deal with. But um, the Jones Act is a good way because the there's two Jones Acts in Puerto Rico, and the first one is the one that gave us citizenship, and then the other one requires that everything that's brought to the island has to come through American boats. So mm-hmm. everything from food to gas to electricity is anywhere from like 5% to 30% more expensive in the island. Um, so starting off, and the Jones Act takes about $500 million from the economy every year. So if we didn't have the Jones Act, we would have been able to pay the debt that we have right now like 10 times over. Mm. Um, So that's one good way to start, but I don't think it's going to be enough. Like the PROMESA bill that um, was passed, I think it was under Obama's administration right towards the end, Mm -hmm. 
that made the minimum wage for people my age four twenty five. But it didn't change the fact that everything is thirty percent more expensive in the island. Um, they took away about six hundred million from the public universities. Uh, it's a whole lot of economic policies. The Promesa Bill is basically dictatorship in Puerto Rico on top of another dictatorship because the people who are in that board making the economic policies for Puerto Rico have never been to Puerto Rico, are not Puerto Rican congressmen, were not voted in by Puerto Rican people, cannot be prosecuted if they do anything that's illegal with our money. Um, they have complete immunity from anything they do in the island. So I think the Jones Act and the Promesa Bill would get rid of a lot of your uh, a lot of bureaucracy that's getting in the way of being able to pass policies and make real tangible change. Mm -hmm. And we are talking about indigenous people, people who have, we're talking about people who have been on this land for centuries being treated like this. Yeah. And, and, and Americans leave the United States, the continental United States and go to another country and they get treated Typically, for black folks, it's a little bit different. But for yeah. the most part, they get treated, they get all of these access sometimes to rights that people who live in those countries don't have. It just, and they, call, they don't call themselves immigrants, they call themselves expats. It yeah. just, it, it, <laughs> it blows my mind. Thank you for sharing that with me. Do you, I, I know that was kind of a challenging question and we don't have a lot of time. Um, so do you, ex so we've already established that, you know, Puerto Rico is U.S. territory. And um, when I ask this question, I'm, I think what I'm talking about is the continental U.S., you know, where you are now compared to what it was like growing up in Puerto Rico. Do you consider um, the United States to be your home? Does it feel safe? No, not quite. I kind of feel like, and I mean this, I, I, I say this carefully because it almost feels like I'm diminishing the refugee crisis going on right now, but I feel like Puerto Ricans who have moved to the United States have done so almost as refugees because we, we're doing it to escape all of the, the things that have been doing, like that have been going on in Puerto Rico. So it's kind of hard to call the place that's destroying your home home. Mm -hmm. So whenever people ask me where I'm from, I still say Puerto Rico. So a lot of times people think that I came straight from Puerto Rico to university or to the law school, but I've actually been here 10 years. But Texas mm -hmm. never felt like home. Mm -hmm. um, and I've reached this weird point in my life where I've been here so long that I don't know if I would necessarily feel... It would be hard to go back to Puerto Rico, but mm -hmm. I also still look forward to going back to Puerto Rico someday mm -hmm. to live there permanently. But mm -hmm. the more I, okay. the time I spend, the harder it seems to become. Because you're like, because even though I get what you're saying, because your life is not your your life is here. Like all of your investment, right. all of it is here, and I mean considering what the United States has done and continues to do to your home, I, it's just, I get what you're saying. I totally get what yeah. you're saying. Like, there's no way that I could go home right now and 
live off of four twenty five an hour. Right. And didn't work all this time in the United States to get multiple degrees just to go back to Puerto Rico and, and work for four twenty five an hour. You know, and I mean, that would be the minimum wage, so I'd likely be able to get more, but it would still be a lot less than what I deserve because of all of these laws that have been put in place to try to remedy the fact that we have debt that we did to ourselves. So, And that's air quotes because, you know, this is going to be a podcast. She's using air quotes (laughs) on that. There's a lot of things, I mean... The Puerto Rican government is corrupt, but I think people forget that we didn't have our own government until the 50s. So the majority of the damage that was there was done by the United States for those 50 years. Like, we didn't have an anthem, or we weren't legally allowed to have an anthem. And then when we were finally given one, it had to be edited down from what it was because the original one talked about revolution. Uh, We couldn't have our own flag, so, like, the fact that I'm able to have this would have gotten me arrested in Puerto Rico. Uh, whenever my parents were alive, we got massacred. Like we, there's so many different things that they did to us that put a dent on the economy. And then when we finally got our own government, that was a, and the people who were appointed to our upper drinking government were appointed by Americans. So they were sellouts to American people. And then they wonder why the government that we have now is corrupt, but because it's all led by at least locally, it's led by Puerto Rican people, they can point the finger at us and say, oh, it's your government that's corrupt. It's not ours, even though the local government was still established by the United States. So what we are are talking about is a systemic, consistently systemic oppression that forces people, that continues, colonization is still happening now. And this is the problem that I have with a lot of white folks, is they talk about it like it happened a million years ago, you know. Oh, colonization is old. Civil rights, that's old. No, no, ma'am. No, sir. Your grandparents and your parents, some of them grew up in that. You know what I'm saying? My grandparents grew up in that. They still exist. That stuff that, you know, we live in a world where apartheid is still happening now in Palestine. This is not, (laughs) this is not way back when, the way that people talk about it. Part of the reason that there were so many deaths during the hurricane, too, because you have people like my grandma who grew up through, um, you know, being given citizenship just to be sent off to war, Uh, sterilization of Puerto Rican women without our consent. Uh, the massacre of Ponce, which, like, they killed children as young as 12 years old and then staged it to look like a Puerto Rican person in the crowd has shot first. Um, they lived through bombings. Like, I was four years old the last time there was a bombing in Puerto Rico. And, it was and what, if you don't mind telling me, what year, how old are you? I'm 22. There you go. So She's 22. So the bombing stopped in 2001. <laughs> And that was two years after the, what happened was there was a bombing, they misfired and killed a security guard who was in the island. So there were protests, and then two years later, they finally stopped the bombings in Puerto Rico, but they haven't cleaned up the mess they left behind. Mm. I would challenge people who go around saying things like, and this is Americans, this includes You know, this includes black folks as well who go around saying things like, we live in the best country in the world. Everybody wants to come here. People don't want to come here because 
you know, everything's just, when we're talking about the American dream and what it looks like, it's because the dream was, this quote-unquote capitalist dream was stolen, typically stolen from their own country. You know, yeah. you take water out of a community, what are they going to want to do? You need water, they're going to go, they're going to dream about water. They don't have water. You need it to live. You need it to survive. They're going to dream about water constantly. They're going to dream about how they used to have water to, you know, use in agriculture and to, you know, build art, water fountains and beautiful artworks of art and to drink and to nourish themselves. And they're going to want to go to a place that has water. And it's not because that, it, even if that place stole water from them, it's not because that place is just beautiful and amazing. It's because the people are thirsty. They're hungry. They want to survive. Yeah. So you have people like my grandma, people that age who died during the hurricane only because they didn't want to come to the United States. So my grandma would have preferred to die and be taken away by the hurricane in Puerto Rico than step foot in the United States. Uh. You asked about her opinion of, of the United States and about moving here because she's gotten to an age where she needs to be taken care of, but she refuses to move here permanently to be taken care of by the kids that are here because she doesn't want to leave the island. She does not like the United States. And then you have people like my mom who grew up during the gag law period in Puerto Rico where just talking about independence could get you killed or arrested, who refuse to accept the fact that there is colonization and will say things like, oh, but we, we should be grateful to the United States for saving us because that was the rhetoric that was put throughout the entire island for decades. So there's like these weird generational gaps where there's, you know, people my grandma's age that are like 80s, 70s who absolutely loathe the United States for everything it did. And then people my mom's age that are 50 who are taught to, who are brainwashed to love the United States. And then there are people my age who have kind of learned from both of those stages to see what it is and who have started to speak out more for independence or maybe even statehood and so there's a huge divide between are we better off becoming assimilating and becoming a state or being independent and doing our own thing but we've been taught for so long that we're so corrupt and our government is so corrupt and our government is the reason that we have the debt that we don't even trust our own selves so we're more likely to run to the united states for statehood and salvation oh katie thank you so much for joining me yeah, we course. covered a lot. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, can you tell folks a little bit? I don't know if you're working on any projects or um, any community work or anything like that. Can you tell folks where to find find you online, what you're working on? Yeah, um, I have a LinkedIn where I put in all of the stuff that I published and um, like my thesis is on there and all of the work that I do. Right now, I'm mostly just volunteering with the International Refugee Assistance Project. So I'm about to join the legislative team and just do a whole lot of lobbying and writing and keeping up with the laws and how they're changing. But most of it is going to be on my LinkedIn, and it's under Katie Mendez Pedraza, um, and that's P-E-D-R-A-C-A. -E awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Katie. I do appreciate you. Um, and good luck with your studies. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, yay. Welcome. This is the American Cast Conversations, Capitalism and Ubiquity. Um, I have Katie here who is in South Carolina. 
Um, and I'll be talking to her a little bit about her experience um, being from an immigrant family. Hi, Katie. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. And thank you so much for joining me. Um, let's just go ahead and get started. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, what you do for a living to make money. Um, well, I am. I was born and raised in uh, well, born in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, which is right around where I live now. Um, I, like went to college here. I moved out west for a while and then moved to Colorado for a while. But now I'm back because I really missed home, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a chiropractor. And so uh, that's, I mean, that's what I spend all day doing is just treating patients. And, mm -hmm. you know, I used to have I actually, I was looking back on my 20s the other day and I was like, I used to be way cooler. Like I had a lot of cool hobbies and stuff like that, but it, you know, gotten more into the, I, I guess, like stricter adult phase of life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, recently married about three or four months ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, like just moved at the same time. So it's been, you know, a weird, weird time to get married and do all that stuff at the same time. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and former musician, former dancer, like those were my okay. things that I used to do. So I was, you know, I guess an artist. Um, haven't done it for a while, but I'm still okay at it, which is nice. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your background, uh, just being from an immigrant family, what's your heritage, where is your family from? So my mother's side is originally from the Wisconsin area, mm -hmm. um, and my great-grandparents came over from Germany. Okay. Um, and then my dad's side has been here a little bit longer, but they are just, like, from Scotland, pretty much. Okay. So it's a very, like, you know, Euro, like, Western, Eastern European, like, mm -hmm. you know, so um, what gener so we talked a little bit about this. You're a second or third generation immigrant? Third. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and earlier you were telling me, you know, it's, it's very fast paced now in terms of your career as a chiropractor. So do you not have as much free time as you used to to um, sort of do your creative interests? Um, do you feel like you work a lot? Tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I, it's actually not as bad as it used to be. Um, I used to work six to seven days a week, mm -hmm. uh, really long hours from like 10 to seven most days. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally I'd have a half day, but it was at clinics that like, when you get into this, you end up working for someone else in the very beginning. Most often some people will open a place right out of school, mm -hmm. but um the place that I was working for was really high volume. So I would see sometimes as many as 50 patients a day. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a few years. It was, it was a while. And I had a little break in between when I first moved and I was waiting on my new license to come in in South Carolina. Then I went back to the old standby waiting tables. Um, but it, it's been a slog, I would say, for the past few years. And I just started at a new clinic where I do have more free time. Like I have an act of official lunch break and mm -hmm. I have um, like weekends off, which I have never had in my entire professional life. So mm -hmm. that was, that's been nice. Mm -hmm. um, but 
yeah, I, I mean, it's it's getting to the point now where I'm able to build in a practice that I can set my own schedule a little more. But mm-hmm. before I was very much like locked into really strict schedules, mm-hmm. working, making a whole lot of money for somebody else. <laughs> and right. Not as much for myself. Right. So, um, so do you know why your family moved here? Your grandparents? It, it, there was no, like, there's no big reason that mm-hmm. I've ever heard. You know, it's just kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, they came over. Um, my great grandmother, my great grandmother's side lived in like the Pennsylvania Dutch community up in there, like mm-hmm. after they had come over. And then they were sort of like, they went over to, um, I think, like Milwaukee. They were in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And then after that, like, when my grandmother came along, she was there for a while and then everyone went down to Florida and then they were kind of moving around with traveling salesman type jobs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it was, and then my dad's family, it was just kind of like, oh, they came over, period. Mm-hmm. But it's never anything that's been like discussed. There's no grand story about it. There's okay. no like major reason. Mm-hmm. So there's not, so there's not a big story. There's not a big trauma. Um, they just, sort of wanted to, a change of scenery, basically. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) A change of culture, a change of scenery. So knowing that, you know, what are your thoughts on the American dream? Um, Not as a cultural concept and also as a socioeconomic concept. Um, I mean, honestly, I think it's, I think the best word would be rigged. I don't think it's necessarily real in terms of the way that people like to romanticize it. Um, You know, I feel like every now and then you'll open a newspaper or magazine, open a newspaper, click on a newspaper article or like read a magazine where it's like some big story about like, you know, a guy coming over from Mexico and he starts his own shop of some kind. And now he's in charge of like 10 different businesses. And it's, it's always like a nice story to read, but it's definitely not the kind of opportunity that the majority of people coming over have access to. It's, and it's usually like, it's usually, it usually comes up because of something else that's happened, you know, like in Mm -hmm. response to like the terrible stuff that's happening to immigrants now, it's kind of like, Oh, but here's this one story about like this guy that succeeded. Mm -hmm. And so one of those, or, you know, like, I don't know, with the police violence, you'll see like a video where it's like, hey, this like white cop was nice to a little brown kid. And it'll mm-hmm. be like, see, everything's fine. Well, and it, mm-hmm. well, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I really want to focus on your identity as a white person from an immigrant family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, that definitely um, is... It's real, you know, what you're talking about, what happens in the media, uh, most certainly. I would say, and and I can't speak to that because I'm not an immigrant and I'm not brown, Um, but, you know, of course, those stories about one or two folks, you know, whether or not they may be true, it doesn't represent the whole or majority of the folks who come here. Um, And and that may and that could possibly be uh, said for a number of white folks as well. But I have definitely, um, you know, studied and heard about a a clear difference in privilege for uh, white immigrants and also um, white folks from immigrant families 
who come to America um, in comparison to people of color from immigrant families in America or um, POC immigrants. Um, So I would like to just know a little bit more about your experience as a white person who's from an immigrant family and um, how how that has shaped your view of the um, American dream. Is it something that you saw your grandparents attain? You, if, if, when talking about you know your grandparents who did move here and and what they think about America, the experience they had, it, do you think that it's real? I mean, based on on your personal experience, not necessarily what you see um, other folks. Um, experiencing as far as pe- people of color because they can they can speak for themselves but I really want to know you know based on your everyday your daily mode of living your family holidays you know travel things like that would you say that the American dream exists has it benefited you has it harmed you tell me a little bit more about that okay um, it definitely it's definitely benefited my family. My, on my mother's side, like my grandparents, um, the, I don't know much about my great grandparents, but my grandparents uh, owned hotels and like, you know, bed and breakfasts and stuff like that. That was their main trade. And they went into it. And I know that my grandmother came from a really kind of rough alcoholic type background, but mm-hmm. once they got together, and they started building this thing it grew very quickly and it Mm -hmm. was very successful Mm -hmm. and it was i mean she's like she's got a lot of um charisma too but it it was one of those things where she was able to not only do it but she was able to start over several times doing it in different places Mm -hmm. and she Mm -hmm. um my grandfather passed away when he was in his 50s and she's in her 90s now so she's I think the last hotel that she started was in a retirement community in Florida when she was 72 and she built it up and, you know, sold it after five years and she's still living off of that. Mm -hmm. So, Hmm. I mean, that really benefited her. Mm -hmm. And then um, as far as my dad's side, the first generation was just builders. So they came over and they were laborers and they did like farm work, um, and carpentry and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then my grandfather um, had the opportunity to go to medical school, which hmm. wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean, this was in the thirties. I have like an, almost an entire generation missing in there cause I have old parents. So my mm-hmm. grandfather okay. was in medical school in the thirties. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, it, it wasn't, he, he just went and back then it didn't, mm-hmm. it, it, there weren't like, it didn't cost what it does now mm-hmm. and also what it did cost he had access to assistance to take to like compensate for that right and so mm-hmm. he was able to just you know take out a pretty minor loan get through medical school mm-hmm. and then after that i mean it's a matter of like whether your kids are fuck ups or not i guess but like my dad did the same thing um in the 70s and then you know after that and I was able to go to college like it was never an issue and I paid for most of it with scholarship but what was left there was money to pay for it or there mm-hmm. was some there was an asset that could be sold to pay for it okay and 
Okay. Um, sorry to interrupt you. I, I, so what I'm hearing you say is that when it came to your grandparents who were immigrants, your grandmother, she was hardworking, um, but there was also not only an element of privilege, uh, but also an element of redemption. You mentioned that she not only started something, but then she went multiple places and started over and she was able right. to build something and, and, and now um, she can subsist, you know? Um, a lot of what's going on right now that we see in the country, a lot of folks don't have that that money and that that wealth, that access to wealth to get through retirement. Um, I just had a conversation with my grandmother, um, who is 72 uh, years old, and you know we were talking on the phone, and she she was telling me she she's not going to see this, but if she knew I said this, she would be really. <laughs> but she was telling me, you know, I'm thinking about getting a part-time job, you know, and my, my grandmother, um, you know, she had more privilege than a lot of folks. Uh, she did graduate from um, an all-black college um, and she got a degree in accounting. She went on to um, work for various oil companies in their accounting departments up until retirement. She's traveled the world. Um, but even with having a degree, um, even with sticking at a company for years and having access to a pension, she's mm -hmm. still at 72, almost 73, has to go back to work and get a part-time job. Yeah. Um, so she, and, and, you know, she's not an immigrant, but that just tells you a little bit about how those experiences, experiences are different in many ways. And, you mentioned that your grandfather, um, um, he he went to college in the '30s. You know, he he um, he was able to take out a loan in the '30s in America. When mm -hmm. I think about what Black folks were experiencing, first of all, let's just talk about POC immigrants. Mm -hmm. Most Black and Brown immigrants were either being deported in the '30s because they were black and brown, mm -hmm. or they were, you know, they were just, they weren't allowed to come into this country. A, yeah. a lot of black immigrants couldn't, couldn't come into this country until around the time of the civil rights movement, which was mm -hmm. much later. Um, there just weren't, you, if you, if you were, if you were from a predominantly black continent or country, you, you couldn't apply for immigration to America. It just, it wasn't going to happen. So I'm glad you really brought that up. Sorry to kind of, you know, get a little bit into that, a, a little bit more deeper into it, but um, passionately as well. But, you know, I just, it, it's just interesting to me to kind of hear that experience that your family members had. Mm -hmm. um, so um, for you, it sounds like it does translate to I mean, you are very hardworking, but it does translate a little bit to an access to wealth. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and also safety, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, so what I also like, I would like to know is um, how, um, how is American capitalism, and of course you were born and raised here, but how is American capitalism impacted your life? Um, how has it impacted um, 
your family? Um, and do you know a little bit of how it may be impacting your country of heritage, but specifically, um, how is it, how is American capitalism affecting you? Specifically, the way that I see it is that right now, it like this moment in time in my life, I'm on like, I guess the worst end of it, just for me specifically, mm -hmm. like starting out in a new career and working for someone else, you know, 60% of everything that I make goes to somebody else. That's pretty classic capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and it is extremely frustrating. However, when I look at the rest of my family and like the people who have aged, the people who are approaching retirement, like my parents, my, my grand, my grandmother's the only surviving grandparent right now, but the way that okay. she's been able to retire and stay retired, um, it's benefited us because, you know, I mean, she like, she, she was able to make just a massive amount of money off of this place that she bought for nothing. Hmm. And, you know, turned around, sold it five years later, and it was a huge asset. And then right after she sold this place, the housing market crashed, and the people that bought it basically lost their home that they had bought. So that's wow. another aspect of it that she barely missed her, um, but that she did not get wrapped up in. Mm -hmm. uh, as for my parents, my mom, like, it's benefited us because my dad's in a profession where he makes a really large amount of money for okay. the same amount of work and the same level, like as far as working hard, whatever that means, same mm -hmm. level as work as a lot of other people. And mm -hmm. it's one of those things where you kind of look at it. I think about it all the time, actually. I'm kind of like, how much could one hour of work really be worth max? You know what I mean? Right. Like, I understand that. <laughs> I understand that he went to school for this. I understand right. that like it costs a lot. It was hard, blah, blah, blah. But that ultimately that was like four years of medical school mm -hmm. and then, you know, a residency. So a few years and now he's almost 70. So like, mm -hmm. and I, I don't, I honestly don't know exactly what he makes an hour, but I, I know an average of what he probably makes an hour. And I look at that and I'm just like, I mean, he's, he's family practice and I mean, I'm not trying to like disparage him at all, obviously. Right. But he's family practice on average, he'll just go into like 30 people's rooms a day and diagnose like the flu or diagnose, you know, mm -hmm. you have a cold or we need to refer you out to someone else. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge is valuable, but like how valuable could it possibly be at the end of the day when mm -hmm. there are people who work three different jobs and mm -hmm. still can't afford to pay their rent? Mm -hmm. Um, so roundabout way, it's impacted my family in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that it will eventually impact me if I, you know, keep working at it and keep building up. Um, but probably, honestly, probably not on the same level, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you brought that up because it... <laughs> It, capitalism is inefficient. It is so incredibly inefficient. When you look at, I, I'm so glad you brought up how much money, what, what is an hour of your time worth? Yes. Because we look at people like, it was just released that, it was just released that Jeff Bezos um, makes 
uh, or at least last year, made $150 million a day. Yeah. Yeah. A day. <laughs> he, made, he made $150. How do you even quantify that? Like, how could it possibly be justified? How, how can you justify it? How can you quantify it? I can't even in my mind. What is $150 million a day? for years. I mean, what, yeah. what, how is he using that money? Certainly not to pay his employees, but yeah, right. just, <laughs> it, it, it blows my mind when you think, when you just think about it. So, and of course, a lot of people are going to say, you know, doctors do important jobs and that is true, but there are also other important Mo, there it's a skill to do domestic work for example there are other other jobs are also important you know they take a lot of work they benefit people's lives in very important ways a lot of these jobs are critical they are incredibly critical and who's to say that the staff member that keeps the doctor's office open is not as important you know, as as the the doctor himself or herself or or a non-binary person, especially when the staff member is the person that keeps the office hope open, keeps the books, makes sure the schedule the schedule is in order. You know, how is that person not as important as the doctor if they are the reason why the doctor can come in every day and do their job and not be bogged down with paperwork and, you know, and knows where all the files are. So they know how to, you know, and fills, fills prescriptions and writes all of that paperwork and talks to the insurance company, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really good point. Um, I uh, would also, um, I, so a lot of the other things that I was going to ask you, we pretty much got into that uh, towards the beginning. Um, you know, obviously you were, we've already discussed the fact that you are a third generation immigrant, you were born here, but I'd really like to know on a deeper level, do you consider America to be your home? I do. Does it feel like Yeah. Home? Okay. Yeah, it, it feels very much like home for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and I even have like a very specific community feel of home, like mm -hmm. very kind of small town, uh, just how do I put this? Like a really small radius in which I feel like I'm at home, mm -hmm. I guess, say. So it's, and when I've, you know, visited places abroad and visited places that my ancestors have lived, it's been a really cool experience. Okay never been something that I was like, oh, I, I maybe I'll come back, come back mm -hmm. here someday. I keep doing air quotes. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's like, this is an interesting thing from the past, but my home is here mm -hmm. pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, that's interesting to hear. I, I, th I, do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that you are a white woman, that you do feel safe, that you do do feel like, um, you know, America is your home? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say, well, I mean, I can see it. It's been interesting leaving home and going to the West Coast and then coming back. Okay. Because, 
you know, growing up here, there's a certain amount of static around certain issues okay. that you, you know that, you know, you're taught like, oh, slavery happened. It was wrong. This is where it happened. It mm -hmm. was wrong. Blah, blah, blah. It was wrong, wrong, wrong. But then you start seeing how people interact day to day and you're like, yeah, a lot of people don't really think this based on how they act and the things that they say and the things that they do and the people that they hire, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like my comfort level here absolutely is heightened by the fact that I'm white. Mm -hmm. I mean, living down south, especially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, of course, we know that slavery is still happening. <laughs> yes. So all over the world, um, here in prisons, human trafficking. So it's mm -hmm. definitely not, not not anything that's past tense. Um, and it definitely wasn't um, and isn't uh, confined to the American South. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, if I, I, I'd like to also respond to that because I, I'm glad that you, you know, you're able to say, yes, I do think it's because I'm a white woman, because I myself as um, a black woman who was also born here, whose family has been here for many generations, not by choice, um, who worked and essentially built this country and built uh, um, a lot of the wealth that white folks have access to, I, um, I don't feel safe here and I do not feel like it's home. And I do feel, I feel more at home in, in even predominantly brown countries where I have essentially or almost no ethnic tie to whatsoever. You know, I feel safer there. I feel more at home there just because of the the element of, of white supremacist capitalism. Um, thank you so much for joining me. I, yeah. I do appreciate it. Thank you for, you know, rolling with the punches, uh, taking some <laughs> of these harder hitting questions. Um, tell, please, uh, you know, people are going to be watching this, you know, tell us where we can find you um, online moving forward. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was great to talk to you like in person and I guess meet you. <laughs> yeah, over the internet, but what is reality anymore? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, right. It's all a simulation. Everyone's <laughs> <laughs> That's a conversation for another time. <laughs> so where do you want to share, you know, where folks can find you online? Is there anything that you're working on in, in terms of your creative practice? There's not, unfortunately. Um, I have on the, pretty much the only um, social media I interact with right now is Instagram, mm -hmm. which is at funky dot Coleman Dina. <laughs> I love that. I love your account, but it's it's just too depressing. I haven't been on in a while. Mm -hmm. um, I can't even remember what my Twitter handle is actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Instagram is pretty much the only place that you would find me. But yeah, Twitter is also pretty toxic. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? What's your background? Uh, what you do for a living? 
Yeah, sure. So um, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you holding the space. Um, my background, well, first off, my pronouns are they, them, she, her, hers. I honestly prefer folks say they, them, because just from looking at me, you can't tell when I'm particularly feeling womanly, which is an odd gender thing. Um, but yes, there it is. Um, so I've been a sex worker for about the last six years. I've mostly done sex work in adult film. I have done a few um, like dominant submissive engagements. Um, I webcam somewhat regularly, but the bulk of the work I do is producing adult content, pornography. I'm a pornographer. Uh, tell me a little about a little bit about your immigrant background. Um, oh, sure. So, are okay. you from an immigrant family? Did you uh, migrate here? Okay, yeah. So, I am first generation. My parents both came from the Philippines separately, met in the states. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I was born in New York, but I am Filipino or Filipinex. Um, if we're gonna challenge gender. Right. Colonization. Language. Exactly. Yeah, about how I even identify in regard to my background because like Filipino, like Pinoy, Pinay, there's a lot of language and in, in um, cultural identifiers that is hinged on gender and to challenge that I try to say Filipinx or Filipinx, but there's not a lot of I haven't found um like a cohesive group for me to like find and like and adopt in that language because I say Filipino with an F because I am an American. We don't really mm -hmm. have an F sound or the F letter in, in the Philippines. It's a P sound like Filipinex. So there's even a distinction there mm -hmm. in how I identify. There's a lot going on. And gender is very, it's a very um, sort of, white supremacist eurocentric concept in in my opinion absolutely <laughs> it's very oppressive I yeah i i totally agree that that's a sort of heteropatriarchy binary concept of gender definitely has influenced my culture because we were colonized by the spanish um and there's a lot of there's a lot of that sort of European views and values about gender that have now like percolated with existing um, beliefs there. And now when I think of the colonized sort of identity, but how do we divorce ourselves from that when for a lot of folks, I know for myself, that's all I've really known about my, my culture. This sort of like blend. I don't know what does what does indigenous um, Philippine look like. I don't know. I can't say. I I, I had a lot of um, like an, uh, a very tense relationship with my own identity as a person of color growing up in a predominantly white area that preference mm -hmm. whiteness, heterosexuality, um, men even. Um, so I remember growing up like as a kid in elementary school, like almost wanting to divorce myself from my own culture because as a means of survival of fitting in into the society that I was born into. And this was in New York. This was in New York, back mm -hmm. on Long Island. Okay. Okay. Long Island, New York. Um, well, tell me, you talked a little bit about your parents. You said, um, they, uh, both met here in the States and you were born here. Um, 
So what are, do you know why your parents uh, moved here? You said they moved here separately. Uh, do you know why they moved here? Yes, I do. So my mother is from a much lower socioeconomic status than my father. She comes from a, a much poorer family in the Philippines, and she was the youngest, one of many, many children, um, and she was the only one really to pursue higher education, to become a nurse, and she came to the States to be able to provide a better life for her family back home, and that's pretty common with immigrant families, like one of the children leaving like the country of origin in order to make a better life for themselves for future generations but also to send money back and that was a very real aspect of my mom's experience of immigration my father's experience of immigration came from a bit of a, a higher socioeconomic status mm -hmm. a bit more privileged in the philippines um like a lot of his siblings including himself to pursue higher education and he came to states to continue his family's business so he okay. came here to Start a business, and that didn't. That's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It didn't. It didn't happen. It didn't take off. So he ended up kind of like finding his own place and finding work that was not his original work that he sought out to do. Um, and met my mom and um, my brother and I. Um, so they came really to support their families, and something that really stood out to me when I was young visiting my mom's side of the family a lot that meetings and greetings were particularly really emotional because you're like when she sees her siblings and them her it's like I haven't seen you in so long and we weren't sure if we'd ever see you again because money is a real barrier for those folks um, it sits very differently than my mom than my dad's side of the family who has more mobility to travel mm -hmm. globally visit family members who have immigrated mm -hmm. like there's there's this piece of immigration that like you might never see one another again when you leave mm. so your mom when she left home she didn't know if she was going to be she left home and anticipating to come here find work and send money back to to her family for her livelihood but she didn't she didn't know if she was going to ever see them again or if she was ever going to come back home yeah, I don't want to speak too much as if mm -hmm. I know exactly the internal machinations of my mom, mm -hmm. but that's the sense that I got in these greetings and partings mm -hmm. um, and that I observed as a young child. I was like, this is, there's a lot of crying, there's a lot of upset, there's a lot mm -hmm. of, it was mm -hmm. very intense as opposed to viewing how my father would meet his siblings and mm -hmm. his siblings actually had opportunities uh, to come okay. to the Yes. It's not like my mom's side of the family could just like, you know, buy a plane ticket and come to the United States very easily to visit mm -hmm. because it's it's quite it's it's quite um expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that definitely is an underlying idea mm -hmm. um that, that distinguishes my mom's experience. So what are your thoughts on the American dream as an ideology, as a socioeconomic concept? Oh, I think that it exists as a construction for a lot of folks, and that really informs their how they engage with reality and engage with like work and labor. For me personally, like I see that it is a concept that exists for folks that exists. It's well alive in media and rhetoric and what have you, but 
I know my lived experience as someone who's like living in a pretty heteropatriarchy capitalist society of like, I'm just trying to fucking survive. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to make it like I will have my own dreams that are not necessarily the American dream, but my own because fuck this nation. Um, (laughs) Quite frankly, I'm just trying to figure out what, what hopes and dreams and goals I have for me to be able to live and also uplift all other marginalized folks because I see that a lot. Um, and it's, I don't think the pursuit of the American dream will challenge those systems that shit on so many people mm-hmm. historically and today. Um, so I really reject it personally, even though I know it exists even in my own family. Mm-hmm. Like my parents came over here, yes, to help their family, their parents and their siblings, but also with this idea of like, we're going to do better and create a better world for our kids. Mm-hmm. And that's a big thing. And I think that's really difficult for my parents to mediate because I have come out to them as a sex worker. And mm-hmm. that's really, really difficult to sit with for many reasons. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, um, how your your parents' perception of the American dream, how did that shape the way that you perceive capitalism, for example, and um, the way that you perceive work and um, what what and in terms not only with your identity uh, through your parents and through your heritage, but also with your identity as an American? What were some of the conflicts you faced? How how did how how did that shape that per- perception of yours? I think I really grappled with the expectation of my parents' sacrifice, then then kind of creating this pressure for me to fulfill dreams they had for me Ooh, that weren't good. mine. So their vision of the American dream, um, I think they were hoping to be actualized through me. Through, through whatever success I may obtain by participating in work and what have you. Like, my mom really pushed it on me to pursue a career in nursing because that's what she viewed as success. That was her gateway to the United States and also a very, very typical and common career path for um, women who are, who are from the Philippines, okay. right? That was, that was her way to get out of the Philippines and also a way to support her family. So she, like, really, really encouraged me to go that way. And when I rejected it, in a way, it was a rejection of the American dream she had for herself of her child. That was good. That was such a good response. Uh, I, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. I love <laughs> Pardon? Well, I- can we think of heavy things? I'm sorry. I, I, I love how you talked about that expectation because I think a lot of people, I can't identify with it personally, but I think a lot of people are going to, well, not in the same way, I would say, but I think a lot of people are going to be able to um, identify with that. Um, so what are some of the so we, t- I guess we talked a little, we got a little bit into um, identity. Um, how has, we, and, your, and your connection to your parents, but how has capitalism 
shaped your your personal identity for yourself and also as a sex worker well i'll speak to sex work first because i was just like oh i'm a second ago um <laughs> so <laughs> i was like i was just performing gender for money um not too long ago um so i think navigating capital society survival making enough money to have a roof over my house keep myself fed and keep myself well um really leads me to i hate this but like know who is consuming my pornography it's typically um cis hetero men um a lot of white men um and so that really informs how i show up on webcam because mm -hmm. i'm catering to make myself into a product that they'll buy and engage with okay um and the dissonance there's a dissonance uh, um with who I am, who I really am when I'm not performing and have to, um, having existed in a performative state for so long creates this brand that people through like Instagram, social media, through mm -hmm. pornography consume and they see like, that's my, that's my, that's me a little, that's, that's, they would say she hers, that's her identity, you know, um, because I'm perform femininity and performing um like and, and using my sexuality and sexual energy as a way of performance as a product as content to be consumed by certain types of people now earlier on in my career in porn i didn't really understand or rather i wasn't yeah, I didn't really understand. I, I really developed my notions around agency and bodily autonomy and decisions around like okay. um, how I um, how I show up, the content I make. And as a femme-bodied Asian, um, I was asked to perform race a lot, and mm -hmm. I did because I thought that's all I had. Period. Mm -hmm. In order to make it, and then at a certain point in my career, when I saw like you know what, if I say no to those jobs, I will lose that money. But what does that mean for my identity? <sighs> yeah, right? Yes. And um, I struggle. I am struggling financially because I've made this decision to say no to performing race, to my race. Um, or not even my race, just like Asian. Like, I've been asked to perform a lot of different types of brown bodies. And mm -hmm. I have. Um, and now I've decided, like, you know what, um, I'd rather not. I'd rather make my money elsewhere. I'd also rather make my money if someone's consuming my porn, being okay with what I am, how, how I present, how I show up. Not to say that I'm still not performing. I'm like, that, you know, I'm still performing in a way, um, but I'm by degrees getting closer and closer to my identities mm -hmm. as, like, a genderqueer person, as a femme daddy, as someone who's changed their last name to Little. Like, my original porn name of Lee was chosen by my first manager because he thought, like, well, you're Asian, so let's pick a generic Asian name and didn't think uh, anything of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So even shifting to Little, I know does harm to me because it's harder to find me um, if people do choose to pay for my pornography, you know, and there's a lot to you. And also when it comes to safety, like if I ever do any in-person work, um, how does this person relate to ideas of like um, gender non-conforming folks, trans folks, gender queer folks? How do they mm -hmm. hold that? Is there going to be a violent reaction? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, is there going to be a violent reaction if I'm very forthcoming about my politics and my stances and values and views and things? So mm-hmm. there's a lot to navigate mm-hmm. in regard to like safety and identity mm-hmm. and also making enough money to survive because like, man, I don't miss performing race, but I do miss being a bit more comfortable paying rent. Mm-hmm. So you've had to, in order to work towards asserting and reclaiming your identity and taking hold of your agency, you have had to re- forego aspects of your financial livelihood. Yes. Am yes. I understanding that correctly? Uh, that's, and that's just, that's so just. That's just for, for race perform and shocker, I know. It's, um, it's but, very racialized because I'm wondering if white women have to do that, that same thing. Is that like a similar experience? No, I don't think or so. If, I if, even think about it, like who ages out and born faster, um, like who gets shot out faster? Probably people of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not, that's just my experience of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I may be a little faulty, um, but um, yeah, just it's it, it's something I definitely think about. Like, I wonder, I wonder if. Um, my success in porn is, is influenced by my by my body. Um, yeah. Thanks for answering that question. I really appreciate that. Um, and I just just to take it a little bit. And you've already started to get into some of that. Um, but I'd like to just take it a little bit further, if that's okay. I know I'm answering. I'm asking you some tough questions. Oh, okay. What? What? Um. What are some of the unique challenges and biases that you know of that are faced by first generation um, sex workers and um, immigrant sex workers in the U.S. as well? Yeah, I'll speak to that. Just from my experience, like from my, I can't speak for all sex workers. Clearly, mm-hmm. I can't speak for all immigrant sex workers. And mm-hmm. you. I'll speak from mine, like even going back to um, who, who am I engaging with? When I'm webcamming, I'm directly engaging with people who are looking to consume my content and essentially my myself because it is a in in real time interaction. And oftentimes, I come up with folks who, before even saying hi, will say something really racist, (laughs) will say some shit like, I've never been with an Asian woman before, or say something about, like, the tightness of my pussy, um, or without even saying hello, and this is just how folks engage with sex workers, Mm -hmm. how they engage with my race, um, and all this shit, and it's, that's frustrating, um, again, when I was early in my career, where I came on just like shit. If this is what I, I'm okay. And now I like block people. Like you're not giving me money. You're sitting in my public chat, being really shitty to me, um, and and engaging with me in a way that shows me that like, you don't see me as human. You don't. You know, you're reducing me to this sort of like archetype they've built up in their head that they expect to engage in a positive manner to the shitty way they're engaging with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so my just from a little bit of the research that I've done, do you do you consider yourself a sex uh, worker workers' rights advocate? Yes. Okay. Yes. 
because I've okay because I've seen some of your work and on your social media and things like that and I'm like okay okay um can you tell me about some of the work that you do Sure. Um, well, I'll kind of just give you the general trajectory of like how I became very political through being a sex worker, being in porn. Um, I think like, um, let's see, two, three years into being in the adult film industry, there's some legislation that bubbled up that really challenged bodily autonomy agency. There were like, it was, it was, in, it was embedded with language that was like sex negative. That was also very um, cis heteropatriarchal. Mm -hmm. um, so I became political in that way, and that kind of opened my eyes to this world um, that I was I was always aware of sex negativity and slut shaming, victim blaming things that like if you follow back always follows back to the patriarchy. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. um, and so I I was really determined to to speak out um for my lived experience um and not really hijack everyone else's oh sorry my dog's barking um, <laughs> oh it's because her dad came up i'm gonna close the door um funny. i was like what is going on here okay um so i started showing up at Cal Ocean meetings, like the Occupational Safety and Health Association. I started showing up at like um, like public health hearings and all these things to challenge like concrete legislation that was trying to be pushed through from by some very interested parties who were very anti-porn, anti-sex worker. And um, as I continued doing that work, I saw that there was like an organization, the film industry called the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee that really was pretty integral to mobilizing um, adult film performers and sex workers in adult film because oftentimes sex workers wear more than one hat. I know I'm not just one type of sex worker. Mm -hmm. I'm, I do different types of sex work depending on what's going on in my life. Um, and so I saw that they were mobilizing folks to uplift their voices and center individual voices so folks could be heard and made me be very aware of like margins and who lives on the margins and why systemically mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how, how, like, where can I do work? Um, how can I spend money in the right way or, or donate mm -hmm. money in a correct way mm -hmm. um, that, that supports these individuals? So it kind of shifted even how like I engage with the idea of like charity and donations and supporting individuals and like lifting voices. Um, and through that, especially in the early on, um, this is like a side note, but definitely informs me being an advocate. I was coming out of a very intense domestic violence situation where I felt like I didn't have a voice. So when these opportunities came up and said, like, actually, we need performer voices to speak. And I was like, hey, I'm a performer voice. And it kind of, in a way, like, showed me that, like, yeah, it does matter that the people who are being impacted by laws um, show up and speak for themselves because the people who are writing those laws don't listen to us unless we're, like, shouting at them. You know, mm -hmm. and that should not be the mm -hmm. case. Um, okay, so fast forward, APAC. Um, I ran for a board position, um, and I actually, it's it's hard for volunteer organizations, advocacy organizations, especially in an industry that's very dispersed and very 
isolated in how we exist as freelancers and sex workers, Mm -hmm. um, it's hard for us to organize and get folks to volunteer because it's also very heavy work. It's very heavy work. We're talking about laws that impact people's lives Mm -hmm. um, in a very real way that talks about violence, that talks about the stigma that manifests as violence, um, like systemically and directly. Right, it's upholding this narrative that like sex workers are less than. Um, and so I ran, I had like a board position for a year as president for the year. Um, and now I'm currently in school, so I let my term mm-hmm. end. I'm still associated with APAC and still do work around that. Um, we've partnered with like SWAP and other organizations for International Horse Day March. Um, and kind of like my initiative in, in being on the board was kind of shifting like what how how do we as an advocacy organization engage with the ideas with the the practices in capitalism that says you need to burn yourself to the ground through working overworking yourself to get anywhere Mm -hmm. i'm just like no we are actually the people we're part of the community that needs support so as we approach burnout i want my team to vocalize that and have one another support and fill in because your health matters too Mm-hmm. If we're going to mm-hmm. continue doing this work, we also need to survive. Mm-hmm. We also live. Um, it was a voluntary position, and it, it was really heavy. It was really challenging. It made me be aware of these intersections of, like, gaps in mental health support. Um, mm-hmm. It, like... Just this broad picture of stigma just keeps getting painted and fleshed out more and more, seeing where it pops up in, in real life, in legislation systemically and socially, um, or even in academia, how that manifests, how academics treat sex workers, uh-huh. engage with sex workers, or any marginalized group when they're like, let's do a study. And I'm just like, but are you compensating these people? It's a privilege mm-hmm. for folks to be able to take time to even show up, like things like that. Um, so... When I am asked to be on a panel, I'm like, who else is there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who else gets to be here? Um, who, who, who's in attendance? Um, there, and also, like, are you going to pay me? Are you going to pay the other people? And also, mm-hmm. if you need people to hire for next year, let me know, and I'll forward names, and you should pay those people, too. Um, so advocating in that way, like taking up space in academia is gnarly. Academia is so weird and like performative and has so much power. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of social power. Um, so when I take up space there, I'm, yes, advocating for myself because a lot of people want to, you know, use free labor, access my knowledge for free. I'm just like, no, you got to pay for that. Um, please. Um, unless it's like a student org, and like student orgs, absolutely, let me help you because you're mm-hmm. also the people, you're the agents of change too. Mm-hmm. Um, so negotiating that, navigating that, but also creating a pathway for other sex workers to take in. Like, I'm really fucking privileged. I'm really fucking privileged. Like, I work indoors. I, I, if I just mm-hmm. did adult film, I wouldn't have to do in-person work, even though, like, I'm, you know, I wear many hats these days. Um, but I, I recognize that privilege exists, but so other voices can come in. You know, I want to be the social lubricant to, for other folks to come in. It's not about centering me. Um, and if folks want to hire me specifically, they have opportunity to, but if it's generally like, we're looking for sex workers, like, mm-hmm. who can I connect you to? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's so- how my advocacy kind of plays out these days. I'm in mm-hmm. school right now, so it's really difficult for me to, to, 
to kind of um, engage in the same way, just because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so quite thin. So my advocacy nowadays kind of takes place in like signal boosting, um, donating when I'm able to directly to folks who are struggling, um, uplifting voices, directing people to resources, and all that stuff. Yeah. So, um, so uh, you mentioned the um, legislative aspect. I would love to ask you about FOSTA and SESTA. What are your thoughts? Um, has has it impacted your ability to make a living and um, some of the folks that you know? Sure. It has absolutely done that. There has been huge upticks in violence and deaths. SESTA FOSTA, it's very very heavy um i remember there's like this great sense of like hopelessness and just this sadness because this is it's people's safety it's like when people take away the spaces online where we can talk about like hey this is how you don't get scammed this is how you don't get assaulted this is how you don't get murdered you know these are things to look out for to keep one another safe and we can't even share that with one another on the internet you know, that is so scary to me. Like, the internet is how we find community. Like, being a sex worker is so isolating, can be so isolating. Um, so, so having the spaces taken away from the internet kind of reinforces that feeling of isolation and what comes with it. And also, it's just... It's just harder to screen folks. Something I've noticed is that... Like, law enforcement and anti-trafficking people also benefited from, from like, pre-SESTA FOSTA because they can find people online who are actually trafficking or missing people. But now that that's gone, what are, what are they employing? What tactics are they employing to reach their numbers to combat trafficking? Um, and it's straight entrapment. I've been seeing that a lot, like entrapment happening. Um, have seen warnings like, hey, this this site is doing, like someone's in there doing busts. Be careful. Um, and that's process to FOSTA. Like we are a targeted group. Um, it's easy for the government and law enforcement to take advantage um, and also participate in the trafficking of people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like law enforcement and like traffic people mm-hmm. i know that and yet they're the ones who create this legislation yes and, like, and I, I, I'm like mm-hmm. are you looking at what you're doing in your own house mm-hmm. um and that that's really unsettling it's really really unsettling especially because like Yes, I make adult film, but also, like, I'm trying to grow as a sex worker in a mm-hmm. post-SESTA foster world. Uh-huh. And that, yeah, that's a bit chilling. Um, but I love sex work. Mm-hmm. I love sex work so much. But these barriers come up that make it very difficult for folks to, to continue their jobs and continue to do that safely and screen folks. Um the environment SESTA FOSTA has created for clients is that, like, they recognize that sex workers have less protections if they have any at all. You know, we can't turn to law enforcement. They might assault us or, you know, throw us in jail. You know, um, 
So it's really, it's really challenging. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of, a lot of folks haven't really read into it. They think that somehow um, SESTA and FOSTA, uh, it's making, basically it's creating safety and really what it's doing is it's creating harm and these are the ways in which that's happening. Yeah, like SESTA FOSTA is like nicknamed like the Green River Killer Bill because like the Green River Killer targeted sex workers because he knew that that law enforcement don't give a shit, like society doesn't give a shit about sex workers and FOSTA SESTA kind of reinforces that notion. Like we know better for you. We know better. We know how to categorize what you're doing um, as a form of labor and survival um, and, you know, and, and create this thing that is really harmful rather than actually, if, if you really care about um, changing things so folks don't have to do sex work, like those who, who are doing it as survival sex workers, why don't you target property? Why don't you target, mm -hmm. like... Um, policy around immigration, why it's so shitty, why don't you target, like, all these other things mm -hmm. that interact with a person's decision to enter this. And also, don't, don't reinforce the sex negativity that, like, makes folks who want to do sex work, like, like don't, don't reinforce the stigma around that. Um, but stigma is alive and well and present in people mm -hmm. who write these legislation, legislative pieces. And also, the common public. Mm -hmm. Like, sex worker is such, like, a buzzword right now, but how does that actually, like, sure, it's a buzzword, but, like, what do you actually think about sex workers? Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, are we still, like, the butt of a joke as a dead hooker? Like, are, mm -hmm. what are, what is it? Mm -hmm. No, do you still slut shame? Are you still sex negative? Mm -hmm. and do you uphold the hierarchy where I'm like, yes, yes, escorts are so cool, but if someone who does street work like, how do you hold those two identities in your consciousness? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know? that's so good. That is so it's good. Super it's super frustrating how people how people are like, yeah, I'm totally sex positive. XYZ mm -hmm. call themselves hoes and stuff. Uh -huh. um, but they, like, shit talk folks who are the most marginalized and the most vulnerable mm -hmm. as, like, dirty. Like, no. That's the hierarchy. That's homophobia there. That's classism and oftentimes racism and transphobia. Right. Right. Uh, that was so good. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I do want to ask you uh, one yeah. last question. Um, just with where you are in terms of your intersections and um, what you have experienced here in you know, as a U.S. citizen and also um, considering your her heritage, um, do you consider the United States to be a home for you? Do you feel safe here? No. No, it's not home. I don't conceptualize this country, this nation, and the systems at work that are the infrastructure of it as my home. It is not my home. Um, Home is, for me, like home space feelings happen with community in little pockets of literal space I'm allowed to take up and relax and, and be in, in, you know, I suppose like the best way to put it is like my most authentic self mm -hmm. because there are so many 
so many tensions when I'm just out in the world engaging with people in general because of the culture here in the United States where I have to kind of closet myself mm -hmm. for my own safety. I do not feel safe in the United States for a lot of reasons with the many identities I hold. No, absolutely not. Do you feel like, have you been to the Philippines? Do you feel at home in the Philippines? I have home space feelings with my family when I see them, but mm -hmm. I also am an outsider there mm -hmm. because I was born in the States. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can no longer speak fluent Tagalog, so that's mm -hmm. just, you know, um, shows me as other. And also my Tagalog is very, very much with an American accent, so I'm very much other even in the country that my parents are from. Mm -hmm. So I've really had to kind of redefine like what does home mean to me home is when i'm with the people that can hold me holy where i can be my most authentic self and 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 just be like where i feel like i'm allowed to safely just be myself um and that's not the case generally being immersed in the american culture in the united states oh thank you so much mia i appreciate it i feel like a lot of what you are talking about is your experience is going to, a lot of people are going to be able to connect and identify with your experience. And you've touched on so much. You touched on just the deeper meaning. Um, I really appreciate you. Um, is there anywhere that folks can find your work, find you online, whatever you feel comfortable speaking about? Sure. Um, if folks want to follow me on social media, um, I believe I'm under L-O-V-E-M-S-M-I-A underscore on Instagram. So love Miss Mia underscore um, for pornography online that you can consume directly if I'm allowed to pop that. Um, you can find me on many bits under Mia Little. Also on OnlyFans, on OnlyFans.com slash love Mia Little, um, which I realize phonetically can be spelled a lot of ways, but it's just love and then more name. Um, and through there, folks can connect with me for consultations or video chat bookings or whatever. Um, and I've been getting some consultations from folks who have like relationship questions, questions navigating what it means to be attracted to gender non-conforming folks and stuff. So I'm definitely open to soundboarding that these days and growing in that way. Yes, hire Mia. Do you have a PayPal or anything? <laughs> anything like that? Hi, you guys, hire I Mia. hate sex workers. Uh, <laughs> it was odd because like Venmo, I think is like through PayPal or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, my Venmo is um, love, Mia Little, so L-O-V-E-M-I-A, Little. Um, and the same thing for Square Cash, if folks want to send money my way, I always appreciate it. That's right. Go to the um, go to the Venmo. Go to OnlyFans. Sign up. Pay for pornography, you guys. I watch porn. I enjoy it. I pay for it. Um, so thank you so much. I, I really appreciate. I really appreciate your time.